passage, please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad uh, that you are with us and God, the study of God's Word here together as we continue our fall series entitled Momentum Through the Finish Line, A Study of Second Chronicles. And today we're looking at King Manasseh and keys to finishing well. Um, the pattern that we've had so far in this series is that the kings we've been looking at have had a good start, but then a bad finish. But today we're going to look at just the opposite. Uh, today we're going to flip it around. And this is going to be somebody who had a bad start, but then had, then had a good finish. Now that's the case with Manasseh that we're looking at uh, this morning. And this is kind of an extension of one that we studied his father last month, Hezekiah. Remember God gave Hezekiah that extra 15 years, which would have been great if he had continued to walk humbly with his God. But instead he became arrogant, he became sloppy in those last 15 years and made some mistakes, and so he had a good start, but then a bad uh, finish. And one of the children that was born during this time was Manasseh. And this is just a theory. You can take it or leave it, but it's just kind of a parenting theory uh, that I have with our six children and watching our immediate and extended family and other families that I've seen through the years, is that parenting is an interesting combination of law and grace. Uh, strictness, law, uh, grace, mercy, flexibility. And you've got to kind of have a different combination with each of your children because they're all unique. But over time, I find that we become less legalistic and more grace-oriented as time goes on. Now, if we started off uh, too tight, the danger at the beginning is sometimes we'll start off too much law, too little grace, or if we get it right at the beginning with just the right amount of law and grace, sometimes we could have too much grace, what we call the grandparent syndrome at the end of uh, the time, where as time goes on, pretty soon we get to grandparenting, and there we have almost all grace and, and not enough law, very little law uh, to go along with that. I could uh, see that in my, in my own family. You know, with, when I was born, my sisters were 14 and 9. And so I was raised under a very different set of parents than my sisters were. And my parents, I think, looking back on it, probably a bit too much law and a bit too little grace. For example, my sister, uh, Carol D., um, my, we grew up in Virginia, and my dad didn't like a, uh, a guy that she was dating. And so he shipped her off to Christian boarding school in Florida. Uh, it was uh, the Billy Graham's kids all went to it. It was kind of a reform school for the children of evangelical leaders is really what it was and uh, shipped her off down there. Well, she experienced a tad bit of rebelliousness uh, about that. Now, my sister, Carol D., is awesome and she's turned out to be the health, emotionally healthiest of all of us. She's the one, ask Kimberly, she's got it most together than anybody in our family. And yet there were some scars from that time that I'm sure she would, uh, that she would rather not have. Now, when I came along, I was dating a girl my dad didn't like, and he was thinking about shipping me off to Christian boarding school on Long Island outside of New York City. But I'm the youngest boy, I'm the youngest child, so my mother wouldn't let him do it, and so I got to stay there. But they had a better combination of law and grace by the time they got to me. Now, Kimberly and I have struggled with the exact opposite. Uh, we, I feel like we had a pretty good balance of law and grace with our oldest four. But then our youngest two, we've gotten into that grandparent syndrome, raising kids in our 50s, and uh, we've, we've gotten a little too much grace, and we have to struggle to have enough law uh, mixed with that grace. And I think that's what was going on here with Hezekiah. He gets into this last 15 years of his life, he has Manasseh, and he just is, is not quite as tight as he would be as a parent earlier on. Got a little bit sloppy in the later years. Now, 
what happened with Hezekiah, uh, Jewish scholars, and according to church tradition and looking at him, and biblical scholars call him the Solomon, the second Solomon. Now, that's a compliment, but they refer to his son, Manasseh, as the Ahab of Judah. That is not a compliment. Ahab and Jezebel were the most notorious uh, kings and queen of the history of the northern kingdom, Israel. And so they refer to the father, Hezekiah, as the second Solomon. That's a good thing. They refer to his son as the Ahab of Judah. You say, well, why would they say such a thing? Well, number one, he sold himself out to demon worship. It says in verse one, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. God called Israel to drive out the nations uh, of the Canaanites because of their evil practices, their detestable practices. And now the Israelites start doing under Manasseh the very same things. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. Remember we said about Hezekiah that all these godly kings come along and they said, well, they were really good, but they never got rid of the high places. And finally, Hezekiah comes along, and he gets rid of the high places. Well, his son Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. Now, this is the worst part. Number two, he sacrificed his children to Satan. Uh, A major part of worship for the Canaanites before the Israelites drove them out of the promised land was sacrificing their children. Usually it was Moloch who required that their children be burned alive as an offering to him. And here under Manasseh, they come in and start doing the same thing as, as these nations. Now, just a little bit of an aside. One of the parts we often struggle with in the Bible is Old Testament warfare and the brutality of Old Testament warfare. And, and, and sometimes we're okay with it when God's judgment comes directly from God, like fire from heaven or the flood. But somehow when he uses the Israelite army as a tool in his hands to bring about that judgment, that's when we get squeamish. But here, here's a helpful context to think about it. The Canaanites, here's what they were doing. They were totally absorbed in and demon worship, and demonic worship, and the worship of Satan to the the extent that a major part of their worship was burning their own children alive. And so it would be similar to remember the stories when the Allied troops, when the Americans came and uh, rescued the Nazi concentration camps. And as they invaded uh, Germany, they would stumble across. They were surprised by these camps that they stumbled across and found camps like Auschwitz and others in which they come in and they see the horrific treatment of the Jewish people in these camps. And so some of them just couldn't stand it, and they executed the Nazi guards right there on the spot. Now, hardly anybody has a problem with that. We all understand that. We all would be tempted to do the same thing if we were there. Well, that's what it's similar to, is that God used them as a tool to bring about judgment on the Canaanites because of their detestable practices. But now under Manasseh, they start doing the same things and even worse than the people that God had called them to bring judgment on. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. 
Number three, he desecrated the temple. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple. Number four, he influenced others to follow Satan. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Now, Jesus warned against this. He says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Okay, when we influence other people to do evil as well, that's when Jesus warned us about that, and he influences others to follow Satan. Next page of your study outline. He resisted godly confrontation. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. God sends his prophets to preach about this, and they paid no attention to them. Number six, he promoted injustice. In 2 Kings chapter 21, moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. He killed godly people that opposed him. According to tradition, he had the prophet Isaiah sawed in two. This was one bad boy. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is so inspirational. Hang with me. As a result, Manasseh brought disaster on himself and the nation of Judah. Verse 11, so the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, could be symbolic, but most likely it's literal. Because the uh, Babylonians, the Assyrians, were known for terrorism. They were known for tactics of intimidation. And so most likely they literally put a hook in his nose. They were known for this. And he's forced to march back to Babylon under the Assyrians. March back there with a hook in his nose. Bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. But here comes the good news. Despite that horrific start, he has, believe it or not, a strong finish. In his trouble, he finally sought God. It says in chapter 33, verse 12, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Boy, I wish that read, in his success, he sought God. But you know what the problem is? We don't tend to seek him in our success, do we? For every hundred people that can handle distress, there's only one that can handle success. I wish it was that when everything was going great, that's when I drew most closely to God. But you know why God allows some distress to come into our lives? Because that's when we seek him. That's when we draw close to him. Um, if you didn't come to Christ when you were a child, most likely you came to Christ during a time of distress. The love of your life walked out the door, broke your heart, went through a tough divorce. You lost your job, had a financial uh, bankruptcy or reversal, got a rough doctor's um, uh, thing uh, report. Maybe you had to struggle with one of your children. Usually it is in our distress that we seek the favor of the Lord our God and humble ourselves before him. And when he prayed to him, the Lord said to Manasseh, so sorry, it's too late, you scoundrel. Doesn't say that. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty. This absolute despicable man who had done evil and influenced others to do the same, 
it says when he finally broke down in his distress and prayed to God, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now, why did God put this horrific story in the Bible? You know why I believe he put it in there? Because it it makes us realize if God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive me. If God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive you and me. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You say, Glenn, but you don't know what I've done. Look at what Manasseh did. Micah 7, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight, delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Hebrews 10, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure waters, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And then number two, Manasseh spent the remainder of his life doing good. Here's another piece of great news. If God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive me and you. But also if God, despite our mistakes and despite the messiness of our lives and despite the stuff we struggle with, if God can then give Manasseh a purpose for living, he can do the same for you and me as well. Regardless of the mistakes we've made. He can pick up the pieces. Just like Derek Redmond, we, we pull up short with a hamstring pull. And we stumble in the middle of our race. We, we're unable to finish. And he comes and he puts his arm around us and he forgives us. And he says, I'll give you a new purpose for living. I can make good out of this mess. And I can fulfill my purpose in you. And I can help you fulfill your purpose for which you were made. It says in verse 14, afterward... He rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David. Now, here's our theme we've had all through this series, is that the condition of the temple mirrors the condition of the heart of God's people. In this case, the condition of the city mirrors the heart of the condition of God's people. He rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David. Um, The condition of our campus as a church mirrors the condition of our heart and enthusiasm for the things of God. And that's why this is all building this series. And I didn't even intend for it to do that. It's an amazing thing. Pick this series for a totally different reason. Got a book coming out that this material is on, and it was all going to culminate with, with that happening. And, uh, you know, the book got delayed a few months, and so the timing's off, and yet it, the timing is perfect for this momentum campaign. It's been unbelievable how every time we've gone through this, didn't even tend for it to happen, but God's word has leapt off the page and said the condition of the campus, of the temple, of the city, mirrors the condition 
of God's people's heart and enthusiasm for him. And so two weeks from today, it all builds up to that exciting historic day in in the life of our church. It says in verse 15, he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. He got rid of the temples he had built. What are altars to false gods and to false things in life that I have built, that you have built, that we have built in our hearts and in our lives. We need to tear down the altars to false gods that we have built in our hearts. And all the altars he had built on the temple wall, and he threw them out of the city. That's what we need to do. We need to look in our heart and in our lives for altars we've built to false gods and tear them down and throw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord. You see that rebuilt restored, renewed, refreshed the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Now you say, Glenn, yeah, but weren't there consequences for a sin? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There was forgiveness, but there were, there were consequences. Lest it tempt us to live our lives like Manasseh and jump on God's team in the final minute or so. Number one, we don't know that we're gonna have that chance And number two, the loss of opportunity, the loss of fulfilling God's purpose, and there were horrendous consequences. Do you know there was a red line that Manasseh had crossed during his reign and that the people had crossed? And even though God delayed his judgment because Manasseh repented, not all the the people didn't follow his lead, and they didn't all repent. And, And 55 years later, judgment did fall. And when the Babylonians in 586 B.C., uh, coming and conquer Jerusalem and destroy it and take them into exile. And do you know what the prophets referred back to when that happened 55 years later? The sins committed under the reign of Manasseh. And so there were consequences. Even though God's judgment was delayed, it still came. So are there consequences? Absolutely. But is there forgiveness? Absolutely. Will we see Manasseh in heaven? Absolutely. Now Manasseh was one of the worst sinners of the Old Testament. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, considered himself one of the worst sinners in the New Testament because he had led the persecution of the early church. And so he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. That's why he put Manasseh in the Bible. That's why he put a persecutor of the early church, Paul, in the Bible as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. And so as we share the Lord's Supper together in a minute, um, it just... You just need to know that you've opened up your heart and received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That, that you, you just need to know that you're part of the they too. 
And on the back of your program, you'll see simple outline and a simple prayer there uh, to, to pray uh, something along those lines. Nothing magical in the words of that prayer. It simply summarizes what the scriptures tell us. And if you have received Christ either in the past or if today could be your day, you're welcome to share the Lord's Supper with us. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Lord, I thank you so much for the example, the story of Manasseh and the story of Paul and the story of so many others in the scriptures that you don't hide their flaws and their faults because it encourages us that we can be part of the they too, us too, they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Thank you for like Manasseh, what you've rescued us from and then what you've rescued us to do in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.